Well, howdy, Pastor Mark Driscoll Thank you for letting me help you learn God's Word. And if you want to learn more, go to markdriscoll.org. I've got a weekly newsletter answering your questions, daily devotions, blogs that are Bible teaching and their orientation, and a small mountain of sermons going through lots of books of the Bible. So join me at markdriscoll.org and we'll help you learn even more of God's Word. I love you. This is a great church. I wouldn't just come to Springfield, Missouri, maybe for Andy's, but, <laughs> but every time I've been here, I learned something from the staff and the leadership. There's a warmth, there's a health. So I wanna publicly honor Pastors John and Debbie, wonderful, dear, godly, extraordinary people, and you're blessed to have them. Um, as well as their family and as a dad who's got kids, to see kids grow up, to love Jesus, love mom and dad, love the church, and serve Jesus with mom and dad in the church, I can't think of anything more encouraging as a dad. And so it's a great honor to be with you here today. And uh, yeah, pray for our church plant in Scottsdale, Arizona. We launch on August 7th. And so welcome to my family and the church family at the Trinity Church. I guess we're all doing church together today. And Pastor John has asked me to talk on the topic of marriage. And so uh, how many of you are married? Okay, 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 that's good. Congratulations for praying for your marriages. How many of you are single? Okay, keep your hand up afterward, afterward, afterward. Introduce yourself to each other and, <laughs> and remedy that situation you find yourself in. Okay, as we get into the issue of marriage today, I wanna deal with three marriage myths and three spirit strengths. And before I do, let me introduce you real briefly to my family. Uh, put a photo up and I'll introduce you to my family. This is a recent photo. Um, okay, let me tell you a little bit about our story. Uh, I met my wife, Grace, at the age of 17 in high school. She still looks the same. I'm aging in dog years. Um, <laughs> I got saved at the age of 19 in college reading the Bible that she gave me. So here's the rule. A lady buys you a Bible, you buy her a ring. That's the deal. That's how we did it. I got saved reading that Bible. At the age of 21, we got married between our junior and senior year, graduated 22. We've been together 28 years, been married 24 years, and so we now have five kids. That's Calvin on the left. He starts high school this fall, so I'm on the brink of four teenagers. Um, and then um, there is Gideon, who is 10, and then that is my wife, of course, Grace. I always say, we're a hot mess. She's a hot, I'm a mess. Uh, <laughs> That's me, our daughter Alexi is 12, almost 13. She's super sweet. Our oldest daughter, Ashley, just finished her freshman year of college, loves Jesus, and she's just a great blessing. And then the super tall one is my son, Zach, who just got his driver's license. So I'm, my prayer has come to a whole new level uh, as he is driving. And uh, he is over six foot tall, which so you know, uh, in my family's big deal. We all, we all just look at you in amazement because we've never seen anyone that high, not on a ladder with our last name. It's a big deal. So we're rejoicing in the six footer in our, so that's our family. Three boys, two girls, we all love and serve Jesus. And by God's grace, we're a close knit family. And, uh, and I wanna start by talking about three powerful marriage myths. And, and here's what Jesus says, that Satan is a liar, he's the father of lies, all he ever does is lie. And Jesus says, if you know the truth, the truth sets you free. free. 
And a myth is a lie that we empower by believing. And there are very popular cultural myths and narratives that get told regarding marriage and people believe them as if they were true in fact. They then act upon them to their own destruction. Those are lies. We want you to know the truth so that you can be set free. And true or false, marriage is taking a beating in our culture and especially Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, spirit-filled Christian marriages are not portrayed as being loving or enduring. And the truth will set you free. The first marriage myth is this, that cohabitation helps marriage. Okay? If you're here today and you're dating someone and living with them, you need to break up now. If you are sleeping with someone, you need to stop that behavior now. If you are living with someone you are not married to, you go home, pack your stuff, and move somewhere else. Cohabitation does not help. All the parents are clapping, none of the children. That's very interesting observation. If you were in your 20s, 30s, or 40s, you were born into a massive social experiment that no one exactly knew the results of. And in the history of the world, it was not normative to have a, a, a culture of hook up, shack up, and break up, of living together and sleeping together before marriage. But there was something called the sexual revolution. I would call it the devolution. We went backwards as if we were animals instead of God's image bearers. And the result is that it is now normative for people to wait much longer to be married. The average man is around 30 and the average woman is in her late 20s. 90% of you who are single statistically will marry and the majority of you will cohabitate before marriage. So now it is normal if you were born into this world to think, well, there must have always been abortion, no-fault divorce, birth control, and cohabitation. No, those are recent cultural experiments that have brought death, not life. They are not from God. They do not lead to God. They are not representative of God, and they are not good for you. They're not good for you. And the Bible is clear on this point. It'll use words like fornication, which is living and sleeping together before marriage as a sinful conduct. The Bible will say that among God's people, there should not be even a hint of sexual immorality. So you single guys, the question that you would ask is, where's the line? It's not where's the line, when is the time? And the time is marriage. That's why the Bible says that you should guard your heart. It's the wellspring of life. That's why the Song of Solomon continually refrains, do not arouse or awaken love until it is time. The question is not, single friend, where is the line, but when is the time? And the time is only in marriage. In marriage. And the lie will get told to you that, that marriage is so serious that you need to live and sleep together to practice and prepare for marriage. And some of you I understand, so let me empathize and sympathize if I might. You grew up in a home that was divorced, your parents had a lot of conflict, maybe your family was severed, and as a result you were a bit reticent and hesitant when it comes to the issue of marriage. And then you wrongly believe this marriage myth that cohabitation helps marriage. I am here to tell you that the, the non-Christian statistical sociological data disproves this myth entirely. The facts simply don't measure up. Here is a sum of the statistical data from those who are sociologists and not Christian. You all need a nerd friend and I'm glad to be your nerd friend. Here it is. Cohabitation increases the rates of divorce. It does not decrease the rates of divorce. If you're saying let's live together to reduce our odds of divorce, 
then what you are doing is in fact increasing your odds of divorce. Various studies anywhere from 33 to 151% higher increase in divorce among those who cohabit and then marry. Depression among cohabitating couples is three times higher than it is for married couples. Women in cohabitating relationships are twice as likely to be physically abused and nine times more likely to be killed by their partner than in a marriage relationship. There's nothing safe, there's nothing godly, there's nothing holy in cohabitation. In addition, for those who, let's just get real crazy, all right? Can we get crazy for a moment? Let's say that you don't live with someone before you marry them and you don't sleep with them, okay? For some of you, this is a brand new concept. Let me just give you a moment to ponder it, okay? You don't live or sleep with someone before you marry. You practice abstinence and self-control. If you do marry, your rates of happiness are higher. Your rates of marital satisfaction are higher. Your odds of conflict are lower and the percentage of divorce literally falls off a cliff. God's way is still the best way. God's way is still the best way. You single people are not as enthusiastic as I was hoping. But let me tell you, when you're single, it looks one way. When you're a parent, it looks another, amen? When you've got it, oh, that got loud all of a sudden, okay. I've got a 19-year-old daughter, and when I was 19, I thought, well, certain things are okay. Now that I have a 19-year-old daughter, I know that those things are not okay, amen? <laughs> and here's the big idea. God's heart is a father's heart, okay? This is God's word. It is filled with God's commands, his decrees, and his laws. For those of you that are here and you do not understand the father heart of God or the word of God, let me explain it to you in this way. Every parent who loves their child makes rules to restrain their behavior because that behavior would harm them. And out of love, the parent restrains them in an effort to bring them life and joy. Uh, when we were uh, newly married, we bought our first home. It was on a very, very busy street, four lanes of traffic. Basically, it was almost like living on a freeway, but it was a home that we could afford. We had two young children at the time, our son and daughter. We moved in. And the first thing that I did as a father is I had a fence built around the entire yard so that my children could go out and play freely and safely. I knew that on the other side of that fence, there was the possibility, if not the likelihood, of death, damage, destruction. Your God is a father. Each of his laws, commands, rules, is a picket in a fence. And it is there to protect and bless you. It is there to cause you to flourish with joy and life. And if at any point you hop over that fence, you do so to your own destruction. Marriage myth number two. Contractual marriage works. Our culture is dominated by contracts. You sign up for a website, click terms of agreement. You order a new credit card, 
You agree contractually to the terms. You rent a car, you buy a house, you conduct business, you hand them your credit card and you sign the receipt. We do contracts all the time. There's nothing wrong with contracts, particularly in a fallen sinful world where people make mistakes and commit sins. We need clarity and contracts are totally fine. But how many of you have taken a contractual view of life into your marriage? You have a job description for your spouse, actual or at least in your imagination. You have performance reviews for them. I need you to sit down now and we're gonna go through your job description and I will condemn and shame you and talk about all the ways that you have failed and how you need to do better. How do I know this? Because I am chief among us fools. Some of you might ask, Pastor Mark, what's the dumbest thing you ever said to your wife? And I would need to really ponder that for an extended period of time to sift through all of the potential answers because it is a lengthy number, okay? But among the dumbest things I ever said to my wife, and her name is Grace, which is the only reason she's still my wife, right? We were arguing one day early on in the marriage and I looked at her and I said, if you worked for me, I would fire you. One woman says shame. Another is rubbing her concealed weapon. <laughs> Both of which I would agree with, okay? That was a contractual view, not a covenantal view. Here's how the Bible speaks of marriage, not contractually, but covenantally. In Malachi chapter two, verse 14, there are these guys who are unhappy with their wife. Some are leaving and divorcing them. Here's what God says. She is your companion and your wife by what? Covenant. A covenantal view of marriage is different than a contractual view of marriage. God sees marriage covenantally. Our problem is we often see it contractually. Let me articulate for you the distinction. A contract is between two people. A covenant is between three. It includes the Lord. A contract, the goal is I seek my best interest. So we're negotiating terms and I want what's best for me. In a covenant, I do not seek my interests. I seek God's interests and our interests. What is glorifying to God, what is good for us. Not me, we. In a contract, we, we negotiate terms. And I want the terms to be in my favor. In a covenant, we do not negotiate terms we serve one another on God's terms. We open God's word and we say, God sets the terms for this relationship and we're here to serve one another, not argue and negotiate over what we want, but to seek what he wants. In a contract, I keep a record of your performance. Here's your job, how did you do? I keep a record of wrong, I keep a record of performance. In a covenant, I keep no record of wrongs because the Bible says that love keeps no record of wrongs. In addition, in a contract, if you fail me, I punish you. You're demoted, you're fired. It will cost you. Some of you have a contractual marriage where your spouse is living under your laws, not God's laws. 
You are judging and evaluating their performance and if at any point you do not feel that they have lived up to your expectations, you punish them. You shame them, you blame them, you name them, you withdraw from them, you punish them, you neglect them, you yell at them, you discourage them, you judge them. This not only affects your marriage, this is how you parent, and your spouse and your children are being crushed under your weight of demand and expectation. In a covenant, I do not punish you if you fail, I forgive you when you fail. And that's what Jesus means by saying to forgive the debts, to let it go, to release that person from paying you back. Lastly, the goal of a contract is I want to win. Some of you come from military backgrounds, athletic backgrounds, business backgrounds. You like to keep score and win. That might be okay for sports, military, and business, but it's death to a marriage. Because the goal in marriage is not we have conflict and I win. The goal is never I win. The goal is always we worship. And winning is a completely different objective than worshiping. And when it comes to contract, contract is about getting and covenant is about giving. You will have a brutal marriage when two people with a contractual mentality are trying to take from one another it'll lead to nothing but conflict. You will have an abusive relationship when one person has a covenantal view and the other has a contractual view and this person is trying to take and win and this person is trying to give and serve because this person will be domineering and this person will be taken advantage of. You have a glorious, covenantal, healthy, loving relationship when both people treat one another as Jesus treats his bride, the church. They come to give, not to take, to serve, not to be served, to forgive, not to punish. The contractual view of marriage is absolutely killing marriage. Is your marriage covenantal or contractual? If it is contractual, it is destined to death. If it is covenantal, it is destined to life. Marriage myth number three, Christian marriages are no different than non-Christian marriages. How many of you heard this? Oh, Christians, they're all hypocrites. They get divorced as much as non-Christians. Oh, they they commit adultery as much as non-Christians. You Christians are no different. There's no distinction. There's no change. Jesus forgives you, but he doesn't change you. You Christians are no different in your marriages than anyone else. You have no right to speak about marriage with any authority because you're all a bunch of hypocrites and your marriages are not exemplary and there's nothing different about you. You're to be shamed and stand over in the corner and keep your thoughts to yourself while we redefine marriage. The research is faulty and flawed. Because what they will do, they will walk up to someone and ask, are you a Christian? Yes. And then they'll start asking 
Have you been divorced? Are you committing adultery? Are you, all of these issues. How many of you know for a fact that not everyone who professes faith in Jesus Christ possesses or practices faith in Jesus Christ? I can tell you I'm a poached egg. No shell, no yolk, no evidence, but I can tell you that I am. You can say whatever you want, but you need to then ask additional questions such as, do you believe that the Bible is God's word? Do you believe that Jesus is God's son? Do you believe that we are all sinners? Do you believe that Jesus is our only savior? Do you go to church? Do you read your Bible? Do you pray? When you ask questions orbiting around the area of belief and behavior, then you get a better idea of who, who really is a Christian and who is not. So there's a sociologist named Bradford Wilcox. He's one of the leading sociologists in America. And he decided to do what is arguably the largest study in the history of the country. What is the difference between Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christian marriages and all the other marriages? Not just are you a Christian, but belief. Do you believe in the Bible, Jesus, sin, behavior? Do you go to church? Do you read your Bible and pray? Now, let me summarize for you his findings. He writes a book called Soft Patriarchs, New Men, and this is a summation. He says, church-going husbands, how many of you are church-going husbands, okay? You men, just being here is a difference. It means you're submitting to authority, you're receiving instruction, you're observing examples. Right, then when you come here and you hold your wife's hand and you lift the other and worship to God, that there's something different about you than all other men, okay? Church-going husbands express more positive emotion to their wives, are more attentive to their marriages, serve their wives more, take more time for date night together, and invest more in their wives. Bottom line, Christian men are better husbands. Bottom line. Now, I don't wanna put you guys down, I wanna pick you guys up, I don't wanna discourage you, I wanna encourage you. And some of you guys would say, but I got a lot of work to do. I understand, but imagine who you would be if you were not a Christian husband and father. Everything would be different, nothing would be better, amen? That's what my little girl told me, my youngest daughter told me, she said, Daddy, if you were not a Christian, everything would be different and nothing would be better. What that means is, for you Christian men, you are not where God has designed you to be, but you are certainly not where you would be without God. Okay, so I want you to not just look at where you are, but where you were, how far you've come and continue moving. Additionally, um, it goes on to say, in fact, evangelical married men had the lowest rates of reported domestic violence of any major religious or secular group in the United States. I could tell you right now that having two daughters that I love, I will feel safer if they are married to men who use these hands to pick up their Bible and to worship the Lord before they ever lay hands on my daughter. He goes on to say, the research confirms that conservative Protestant men with children are consistently the most active and expressive fathers and the most emotionally engaged husbands. And men who are regular churchgoers are more likely to spend time in youth-related activities like coaching, sports, hugging their kids, praising their kids, disciplining them, keeping tags on them, playing games with them, and helping out with homework. Christian dads spend more time with their kids. They encourage their kids, they pray for their kids, they kiss their kids, they love their kids. They have the father's heart for their own children. Why does nobody tell us this? We got a whole world filled with boys who can shave, young men who have no idea what to do when they grow up. 
We have a whole generation of men who are absolutely addicted and overwhelmed and overcome and irresponsible and they don't know where to go and they don't know what to do. Why does not the news media just tell the truth? Well, you need to go to church and meet Jesus and read a Bible and pray and find an older mentor who's like a spiritual father because that's the only place you're gonna learn these things. Goes on to say that they also yell at their children less frequently. Couples who regularly attend church together report greater marital happiness, marital support, and romance in their marriage. 70% of husbands who attend church regularly say they're very happy in their marriage. In light of statistics, it's not surprising that the wives of godly church-going, praying, Bible-reading men, those wives have the greatest levels of marital happiness and satisfaction. True or false, ladies, when your husband prays with you, that's the most intimate part of your marriage. There is an intimacy that goes deeper than just the physical, it's the spiritual. And people who don't know Jesus don't even know what we're talking about. Last one, couples who regularly attend church together are far less likely to separate or divorce. The old adage rings true, the couple that prays together stays together. The best thing you can do for your marriage, give your sin to Jesus, be a Christian, find a good Bible-believing church, read the scriptures, attend worship, make friends, pray. Statistically, you will stay married, you will grow old together, you will be happy, you will invest in your kids, and you will resolve your problems. Because that is covenant, and God is involved, and God is good, and God cares more about your marriage than you do. Okay. Now this being said, for those of you who are married, you're married, right? How many of you have either said or thought this statement, I can't do it anymore. I can't forgive you again. I can't love you anymore. I can't put up with you. I can't stand you. I, I can't. Every marriage at some point finds itself at the end of its natural resources. And the only way that marriage can continue forward is if there are supernatural resources. If you're married, this is where you hold hands for the rest of the sermon, okay? You say, I don't want to. Then you really need to. You should probably hold both hands, okay? So if you're married, you hold hands. And here's what I want you to know. There is a supernatural source of forgiveness, love, and unity through the person, the presence, and the power of the Holy Spirit that is not available to the non-Christian, that is only available to the Christian, and it's the same power that empowered the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. If Jesus can forgive by the power of the Holy Spirit, if Jesus can love by the power of the Holy Spirit, if Jesus can maintain relationship by the power of the Holy Spirit, he dies for our sin, he rises as our savior, he ascends to rule and reign, and he sends us the Holy Spirit so that his life can be manifest in our life and his life can flow through our life so that his life is extended through our life starting with our spouse. So here are three spirit strengths. Number one, because you are forgiven, you can forgive. Okay, Ephesians 4, I'm gonna read it in a moment. It's all about forgiveness. What's over in Ephesians 5, the next chapter? What's next? A huge section on marriage. Forgiveness, then marriage, because there is no marriage without forgiveness. Because marriage either gets better or it gets bitter. 
and it depends on what you do when you hurt one another. Here's how he says it. Do not grieve the, the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity. God has desires for you to forgive your spouse. When you resist that, quench that, grieve that, the Bible uses all of that language, you are fighting against the Holy Spirit. Some of you say, I've been hurt. Okay, I understand. But have you let your, your hurt turn to hate? You don't know what they've done. Are you bitter? If you are, right now, the Spirit of God is weeping. If I could use that analogy, he is weeping over the condition of your relationship. Satan never forgives anyone. God never forgives Satan. Demons never forgive anyone. God never forgives a demon. Anywhere there is unforgiveness, there is the heart of the demonic. And anywhere there is forgiveness, there is the flow of the Spirit. And if you are unforgiving, you are grieving the Holy Spirit. He is weeping because what you're doing is demonic. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let how much bitterness go away. When you have cancer and you go to the doctor, you tell the doctor, I'd like to get rid of how much of my cancer? All. Otherwise it comes back and kills you. So it is with bitterness. Let all bitterness and wrath, right? The emotion, the anger, the fury, the clamor, the fighting, the arguing, the slander, the, the ill speaking, the cutting down in front of the children, the posting on social media, the blaring in the false form of a prayer request. Please pray for my horrible, selfish, godless, miserable, painful, wretched spouse. That's not a prayer request. That's an assassination. Be put away from you along with all malice. Any way you would get them back, pay them back. Bring it up again. Some of you are archaeologists. Here comes the past. We're going to dig it up again. Be kind. What does that mean in the Greek? You know. <laughs> to one another, what kind of heart? Tender heart. Not just outwardly doing the right thing, but having the Holy Spirit cause a heart change. That's where Jesus says to forgive from the heart. That's how you can have a tender heart. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. A covenant is between two people in God, two people who are forgiven by God and should be forgiving of one another. Let me say this, if you are here and you're not a Christian, you're not forgiven by God. And so you are in a 
dangerous place. You're living in the path of the wrath of God. Jesus is God, lived without sin, went to the cross to substitute himself to suffer and die in our place for our sins. When we repent of our sin and receive the Lord Jesus, the wrath of God is poured out on him, not on us. We are forgiven. How many of you like being forgiven by God? Amen. Jesus is suffering, bleeding, dying on the cross, and he says, Father, forgive them. And then he dies that we might be forgiven. If you're here and you have not given your sin to Jesus, you're not forgiven. You're still living under the wrath of God. And all sin is dealt with either at the cross of Jesus or in hell, but it's all dealt with. If it's dealt with at the cross of Jesus, there's no hell for you. And this is as close to hell as you'll ever get. If you don't give yourself to Jesus, there is hell for you, and this is as close to heaven as you'll ever be. Your problem in your marriage may be not just a problem in your marriage, it may be a problem with your God that is showing itself in your marriage. If you're not forgiven, you won't be forgiving. If you don't know that Jesus was punished for them, you will punish them. If you don't know that Jesus was condemned for them, you will condemn them. If you don't know that Jesus died for them, you will crucify them. Do you know Jesus? Are you a Christian? Are your sins forgiven? If so, then you are forgiven in Christ. How God forgave you was in Christ. And what he says is this, that gift of forgiveness is not for you alone, it is to be shared. It is to be shared. That you are to be forgiven and forgiving. And some of you would say, but Pastor Mark, you don't understand the evil that they have done to me. And I would ask, is it more evil than what you have done to the Lord? If you're unforgiving of them, what you are saying is, what you have done to me is worse than what I have done to him. And what I have done deserves forgiveness, but what you have done does not. Are you better than the Lord? Are they worse than you? A forgiven person is to be a forgiving person. And when someone wants to be forgiven but not forgiving, the Holy Spirit weeps because that person has placed themselves and their relationship in the realm of the demonic. So here's your breakthrough moment. I came a long way. I love you with all my heart. I really do. Have you forgiven your spouse? Have you forgiven your spouse? If Jesus forgives them, why not you? If, for Jesus, if Jesus forgives you, why not them? This is the one thing that'll change everything. Because if the Holy Spirit begins to flow through your marriage and relationship and forgiveness becomes commonly practiced, the covenant will flourish. You'll grow old together, you'll hold hands together, you'll worship God together, you'll build memories together. You'll be a cute old couple sitting on a couch, holding hands, snuggled up, opening Christmas presents with the grandparents, and that's not the line in any porno because the world doesn't know covenant. Have you forgiven your spouse? 
I just feel inclined to say this to, I'm kind of riffing. Some of you would say, I know that God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself for the things that I have done or failed to do. That sounds spiritual and religious people like to say that on the issue of forgiveness, but what you're saying is there is a God who forgives me, but there's another God above that God that does not forgive me and that God is me. If Jesus forgives you and you can't forgive yourself, why do you think you get to rule and reign above Jesus? If the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, creator of all the universe says, here's my decision, you say, I overturn it. My question is, do you sit on a throne above his? You are forgiven and you can forgive. Spirit strength number two. Because you are loved, you can love. Romans 5, 5, God's love has been poured. When's the last time you poured something out? God's love is poured out into our hearts, the center of our being, through the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. Now, this is amazing. The world has no idea what love is or where love comes from. First John tells us that God is love. That's another way of saying that God is Trinitarian. Some people say that God made us because God was lonely. God was not lonely. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they were doing fine without us. In fact, I am sure all I have done is complicated things for them. It was great before me, okay? The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they live in perfect union and communion. This is the mysterious doctrine of the Trinity, one God and three persons, and that they love one another perfectly, eternally, continually. We're made in the image and likeness of God to be loved and to love. And here's why some of your marriages are struggling. You have taken God's resume and you've handed it to your spouse as a job description. I need you to love me perfectly, continually. I need you to forgive me immediately. I need you to never leave me nor forsake me. Do not disappoint me. Always be ever present and concerned about me. And then you become disappointed because your spouse is a bad God. If you know the real God and that his love has been poured into your heart by the Holy Spirit, number one, your need to be loved is met. You don't need your spouse to be God. God fills the need of love and now you can love your spouse. You're loved and now you can love. And some of you would say, boy, I'm having a hard time loving my spouse. That means you need to go to God to get that love, to give it to someone else. The other day, my son, he's 10, he comes up to me, he said, dad, I want ice cream, I need money. I gave him money so he could go get ice cream. He couldn't have obtained that without me providing it. God is a father. You say, okay, I'm supposed to go love my spouse, God. I, I don't have any love. God's like, I, that, here, take mine and then go give it to them and share it with them. The source of love is God, not you. There's not a well in you of love that flows up for your spouse. There's a well of love in God that flows through you to your spouse. By the person, the presence, the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why the Bible, Jesus can even say to love your enemies. What? Come on. Come, that's a good fortune cookie and an impossibility. You can't say stuff like that. 
Love your enemies. What that means is that love has to come from somewhere other than you. True or false, sometimes your spouse is your enemy. Don't elbow them. True or false, sometimes your spouse is your enemy, or at least they feel like it. You could still love them by the power of the Holy Spirit. This love is supernatural, not natural. It's unconditional, not conditional. It's limitless, it's not limited. Spirit strength number three. Because God is one, you can be one. God wants you to be one. Here's how it says it in Genesis 2.24. This is before sin enters the world. This is God's definition of marriage. Our world doesn't even have a definition of marriage. God does, he created it. Jesus echoes it, Paul echoes it when you get Moses, Paul, and Jesus all saying the same thing. I say, let's go with that, okay? Let's go with that. Genesis 2.24, therefore a man, so marriage is for men, not for boys. Men, okay guys, just because you're, you're a guy doesn't mean you're ready for marriage. Marriage is for men, not for boys, and marriage doesn't make you a man. It makes you a boy with a man-sized problem. Okay? Therefore, Somebody else will be here next week. They'll be very sweet. It'll be a lot easier. Please come back. (laughs) Therefore, a man shall, what? Leave his mama's house, right? If you're like, hey, you wanna get married, live with my mom? No, 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 no. You wanna marry a man and have babies, not marry a man who is a baby, amen, okay? So. If your mom is still picking up after you and giving the car keys and lunch money and making ends meet and you're in your 20s, 30s, 40s, you're thinking, boy, I need to meet a nice woman who could take care of me like my mom. No. So ladies, guy comes up, hi, whoa, wait, 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 wait. Job, Bible, residence, I'm gonna need some information. You're gonna pick me up in your mom's car and take me out on your mom's dime and sneak sneak me into your mom's house. Nah. Don't don't even pray about it. Oh, he believes in God. James says demons do. Don't marry one. Oh, she's hot, so's hell, you know? All right. Okay, back to the verse. A man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, that's marriage. That's not dating, relating, and fornicating, and cohabitating, that's marriage. And the two shall become one flesh. There's the consummation of the covenant. So there's, there's a man and a woman. How many persons are there? Two, and they're supposed to be one. The two become one. Boy, that's covenantal, not contractual. Well, what does that look like? That looks like the Trinity. Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four, the ancient Jews would call this the Shema. They would say it three times a day. This was their confession. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, he is one. And that, that, that language in the Hebrew, it's like a cluster of grapes, one cluster, many grapes. It's an intimation toward the Trinity. Perhaps that's even why they said it three times a day. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. There are three persons. How many gods? One. As the Father, Son, and Spirit are one, so the husband and wife are to be one. This is what Paul calls a profound mystery. Your marriage testifies to the character, the nature, the essence of God. You are made in the image and likeness of God. It's not good to be alone. That's why men and women marry. And the result is that when we live in covenant and the two become one, something of the Trinitarian God is revealed, mirrored, made manifest in some limited, finite, but mysterious, supernatural way on the earth. That's why Satan always attacks marriages because it is, it is a reflection of something of the nature of the Trinitarian God of the Bible. It's why Satan didn't even show up until Adam was married. There are three kinds of marriages back to back. You're not one, you're fighting, you're enemies. The second kind is shoulder to shoulder. You're coworkers, you get a lot done, but you're not one. You're more roommates than soulmates. These kinds of Christian marriages hold together until the, the kids leave home and then the marriage falls apart because they weren't serving wholeheartedly unto the Lord as one, they were serving the children as two. The best marriages are face to face. That's the Bible's language for friendship. It says that one day we'll see the Lord Jesus face to face, that when people meet with God, they meet with him face to face. What God wants for your marriage, what God provides for your marriage through the Holy Spirit is oneness. The Holy Spirit is the only one who knows how to have more than one be one. He has been in perfect union and communion and love and fellowship with the Father and the Son for all eternity. And when he takes up residence in your life, he brings the Trinitarian life of God with him and he allows the Trinitarian life of God to flow in your marriage so that you and your spouse by God's grace through God's spirit can be one. I didn't realize this until I was trying to explain the Trinity to my children many years ago. And it's a very difficult doctrine to explain. And one of my kids said, quote, well, that's kind of like you and mom. There's two of you, but you're really one. Yes. We have one last name, we worship one God, we submit to one book, we attend one church, we sleep in one bed, and we're gonna be together by God's grace for one lifetime. We're one.